0: Fine. Make it
3: kind. M.I.P. With my Matfumo, Mark Thompson. Make it kind. Get woke.
4: God bless you. Good morning. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, MIP is COVID-free free meaning you don't need a subscription to mip every day now for a limited time while we endure this pandemic we want to make it available to everyone so wherever you get your podcast apple podcast spotify google podcast stitcher pandora mip is covid free and available to you and everyone without a subscription Ladies and gentlemen, if you have been under the impression that we have been in a time of reckoning since the death of George Floyd, of course, you're right. But this coming Monday, July 20th, that will be a day of reckoning all its own. Because not only is there a necessity to deal with police violence, and this police-demic. But there's a necessity to deal with what's happening with workers every day. If you're disrespected in one place, you'll be disrespected in another. And so Monday, July 20th, is the strike for Black lives. And I just want to highlight the demands so everybody, everyone can understand them. One, justice for Black communities with an unequivocal declaration that Black lives matter is a necessary first step to winning justice for all workers. All is connected, folks. Two, elected officials and candidates at every level should use their executive, legislative, and regulatory authority to begin to rewrite the rules and reimagine our economy and democracy so that Black communities can thrive. Three, corporations take immediate action dismantle racism, white supremacy, and economic exploitation wherever it exists in our workplaces. And number four, every worker has the opportunity to form a union no matter where they work. Um, to even have to demand that in 2020. Why don't we already have it? What in the hell is going on? So. We want to talk with two workers who are involved in Monday. Aisha Townsend is in Chicago, a McDonald's worker in Chicago, uh, a mother of two. And she's been a leader in the fight for 15 for four years. Alin Umel is an organizing director of the Fight for 15 and a union. And they're heavily involved in the strike for Black lives. So we want to hear from both of them. Welcome to you both. How are you both doing?
3: Fine, and you?
4: Just fine. And I and I pray that you all, the uh, families, are healthy and safe in this crazy pandemic. Uh, Lynn, let me begin with you. Fast food workers, what have they been facing in particular during this pandemic?
5: So even before the pandemic began, and Ayesha can, can absolutely speak to this uh, as someone who has worked in McDonald's and in fast food um, more uh, acutely, one of the things that has happened even before the pandemic began is, you know, uh, fast food workers have been struggling and have been demanding for the past eight years uh, for living wages and for a voice on the job with a union. Um, as this pandemic began, there was a three-part um attack that you began to see on workers, and particularly of workers of color. Uh, You began to see the ways in which uh, fast food workers began to be in the same way that fast food workers have been demanding over the course of the eight years to be treated with and to be paid with uh, respect and dignity, so that they can take care of their families, that in this moment uh, they have started to be treated like they are and been called essential workers, but still not actually paid as such, treated as such, been supported by their uh, corporations as such. And so, um, in as the pandemic has begun, you uh, saw that workers are both uh, subjected to um, things like uh, you know the moment that we're in around the public health emergency and the ways in which they are particularly exposed uh, and the way that this uh, pandemic is ravaging communities of color. You see it in the ways that people are still struggling to survive uh, by you know, still getting paid poverty wages and having to make the choice between their lives and their livelihoods. And you see it in the ways uh, in which people who uh, are going to work and just uh, going through life every single day are uh, subjected to the ills of systemic racism and unchecked police brutality, and so that's why workers are really coming together on Monday. Um, and what fast food workers have been uh, demanding over the course of the last eight years, frankly, as part of this Fight Fifteen union.
4: Aisha, from from your perspective as a fast food worker, first of all, have you gone back to work? Well,
3: I worked, there was a attack. I limited my days at work because I did have a cousin that was in the hospital for COVID-19 and he just recently died. Mm. So I limit my days that I go. I only go two days out of the week and before I come in the house, I make sure that I go through my back door, I go straight to the shower, shower up, and then I touch my kids. I'm scared even when I'm at work because even though we have the face mask and the gloves, And they have the protective gear. I think they still need more to do to protect us as workers. Black and brown and Latina workers, we all need to be protected. And I think McDonald's could do a lot more than what they are protecting us. And we're not asking them for a lot. We're asking for protection. We're asking for a union for all. We're asking for PEE. We're asking for sick time paid off, vacational pay, and benefits for our families if something else happens through this pandemic already I me and my family are already suffering with two family members that had covid-19 mm. so one has died and it's it's a lot being a fast food worker going out here through this pandemic not knowing if I can come home and bring my kids this virus home so I take extra precautions
4: and first of all my condolences on loss of your family member and 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 um we pray for the health of the other family members who were who were ill did i hear you say one of the demands from McDonald's was ppe did i hear you yeah. say- so what are you saying are they not providing you all no.
3: and if it is ppe they're not telling us that they gave us ppe they're just giving us a check and saying in a letter well thank you for your service They're not telling us they actually gave us PEE pay.
4: Got you, okay, okay.
5: One of the things that, um, you know, McDonald's and other fast food companies really only started providing uh, protective equipment to workers after they began demanding it uh, and after they had to go on strike and actually uh, tell their stories in the media about what it actually is like and how they've had to fashion some of their own masks with coffee filters, or in some places have had to use doggy diapers, that kind of thing, to be able to protect themselves and their families. Uh, and so, you know, like at the beginning of the pandemic, it really took, you know, workers like Aisha and other workers going out on strike and demanding, you know, that if you, they're going to put their health on the line, that they they uh, also, you know, should be protected while they are at work. And, you know, as the world's second largest corporation, that they have, you know, the ability, the financial ability to, to absolutely do so, and that they have a responsibility Responsibility to both uh, the workers and their customers to be able to to do so uh, especially as you know people are going back into their communities to to stop this pandemic and this uh, public health emergency
4: so it sounds like we're talking about two things PPE and PPP or whatever the payment part so let, let's, let's just unpack both of those for a minute I Aisha were, were they said that they were paying you but it wasn't clear this what that was. Am I understanding you correctly?
3: Yes, they didn't give us a clarity of what they were paying us. They didn't tell us if it was PEE or not. Okay. McDonald's, I, I've been working with McDonald's since May 4th, 2015 for five years. And being with the Fight for 15 with the last four years has been amazing. We have done amazing work. We have accomplished a lot for fast food workers like me here in Chicago, around the 50 states. We're not asking for a lot. We're just asking for a little. And McDonald's so far does not want to comply with just a little. Asking for a union, that is not a lot. We just want to make sure that workers like me around the world in 50 states are protected with a union. That's not asking a lot.
4: Uh, uh, Alin just alluded. You have been involved in a strike before at McDonald's, Aisha? Yes. Okay. I heard that. You bad. I
3: got involved with, actually, SEIU, the lady I had met at the Billiken Parade. She introduced me with SEIU, and then Miss Felicia had came and introduced me with the Fight for 15. I love everything that we're doing, and I'm going to keep going out on the strike lines until McDonald's does what it has to do if I work with them or not.
4: How many times have you been on strike against me? I've
3: been on strike four times.
4: Wow. Uh... They've not tried to retaliate against you, have they?
3: Only thing retaliation, they lowered like, my hours. I had less hours. When I first began, I had a maybe 9 to 5. And now I have um, from 9 to 2. And the agreement was that during the school year, I would only work from 8 to 2 and not school year, I would do a 9 to 5. They has not kept that agreement.
4: On the equipment, though, the personal protective equipment. You all have had to make some of your own equipment. You mean to tell me they want y'all to come back to work and then provide you with equipment?
3: Yeah, at first when I went in for work, they were like, um, I asked if they have a mask. They're like, oh no, we haven't got the mask yet. But learning from a different worker, they had got those masks. They had got them months before and did not offer them to the workers. So what I did, I made me a mask. And then when I made the mask to take it to work, they told me I couldn't wear that. So when I came back in the next week and we went on strike, the next Saturday I came in, oh, they had a mask for me. I said, well, it's too late, I already have one.
4: So wait a minute, you said they had had some, but did not distribute them? Yep. What's that about?
3: I have no idea. I had found that out from another worker.
4: I assume this is at the McDonald's where you are, but I assume this is pervasive in their other.
3: Well, you got to look at this. McDonald's is a multi million dollar company. They do what they want to do, they don't care if we're not where we work. So when we go in, if we work, we work. And if we don't, they'll find another replacement to replace us. If we say we're sick, they want us to come in to work sick. I can say say to you that you're my owner and my kid is sick. Oh, well, you were supposed to let us know before. I didn't know this kid was going to throw up before I went to work. This is the type of stuff that they do. They're supposed to give us, if our kids are sick, they're supposed to give us a lenient of four hours accredited. They don't do that. And they have it in their bylaws. I've seen it online in their bylaws. They don't do that. Everything that they have in their bylaws, they don't do. They work around what they do. I'm
4: so, Elaine, go ahead. I was gonna ask a question. No, no, no. I think
5: one of the problems, things, yeah, up. that has come up time and time <laughs> again uh, during this pandemic is McDonald's, when given the opportunity to make a ch- one choice or another, they have been unequivocal and completely un- unapologetic about the fact that their number one priority is profit. That comes, uh, you know, in front of. Making sure that their workers are taken care of that their customers are taken care of that communities are taken care of, you know uh they had the ability like many other other companies had to you know not distribute a set of uh dividends that went back to their shareholders and just directly put money in the pockets of their shareholders. They could have taken uh that billion dollars and done any number of things to make sure that workers or you know customers were better protected in this moment um and they have you know come out absolutely publicly uh to say that the thing that they care about is continuing to make profit and even frankly at the at uh the expense of a number of their franchisees like the McDonald's corporation is absolutely unequivocal in this moment about uh you know underscoring that this is what they care about and because you know in many of uh their cities uh it it unfortunately falls on the backs of uh black and brown workers um you know that the choices that they are making around profit is absolutely tied to racial justice in this moment.
4: So, and maybe I shouldn't ask this, don't answer if it's gonna get anybody in any trouble. I mean, you all are striking and I support that. Why are the rest of us, why aren't we organizing ourselves to stop spending our money in McDonald's on your behalf? But maybe you all can't answer that. Don't, don't worry about that right now. Um, but I'm just, Aisha wants to say something. You want to now, but just
3: I don't spend my money at McDonald's. I work there, I've learned that is not something that I want to eat or even feed my kids. I prefer a home kid cooked meal with. So I stopped completely buying McDonald's in 2016. Like we don't eat McDonald's. Right,
4: right.
3: There's no reason. I can make an iced coffee from home with ice. Yeah, so but,
4: right No, you're right about that, but but you understand why I'm asking that. I mean, because at some yeah. point, uh, you know, I've, I've been talking to people about you know what we did with South Africa. Mm-hmm. I mean, we 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 have to go with what works, we don't have to reinvent certain rules, but that's a whole nother conversation. I don't want to, we'll, we'll talk about but that.
3: I do, I do agree with Alin because we are McDonald's shareholders, you have a corporation like Starbucks, they pay their workers because they are their shareholders. McDonald's doesn't want to do that. They want to make profit off of us. Mm. And that's not right. We have families too.
4: Yeah, yeah. You, um, I'll expound on something you said, though about at the expense of franchisees. Be a little more specific about that. When you say to, to what expense and to what extent does that go?
5: Um. You know, one of the things that has happened as a, uh, and that McDonald's has claimed all throughout uh, the time that we have been engaged with McDonald's workers is that they are not directly responsible for you know, the lives and livelihoods of uh, their workers directly. Um, When we know and every single McDonald's worker will tell you that they are told from corporate, here is what your uniform is, here's how many pickles you have to put uh, on any given burger, here is what you have to do in any given situation. They put out an entire playbook around how they should be dealing with the situation, but they have not actually provided any degree of relief uh, for their franchisees directly so that they're supported in any way. Again, you know, uh, have taken uh, the profits from the from each of the various uh, stores during this pandemic and uh, you know, have given that money back again to you know, their shareholders as dividends instead of you know, trying to figure out how to provide any kind of uh, relief for their franchisees, their workers, uh, or any kind of protection to make sure that people are safe.
4: I love the idea, the concept, everything about Strike for Black Lives. Uh, Lynn, how did this come about? How did this evolve and, be, and how was this day chosen?
5: Uh so workers around the country uh have been planning the strike for black lives because they know that, you know, the fight for economic justice and racial justice are absolutely inextricable, as Dr. King has said. Um, and the only way to be able to really ensure the health, the safety, and the economic well-being of every single worker in this country is if they're sending an absolutely like clear message. And so one of the things that people wanted to do is to send this message a month ahead of uh the DNC to be able to call on government and to call on um you know corporations to do better in this moment on behalf of uh your black workers uh because we know that you know in in order for anybody in this country to thrive uh Black people in this country need to be able to thrive. And it's not just about figuring out how to, you know, mourn uh, people who have lost their lives, unfortunately, but it's about taking care of people while they are alive and doing better in this moment. Uh, and so the way to be able to sa- send the strongest possible signal is to withhold your labor. Um, and so there are strikes that are set to happen in at least 25 different cities on Monday.
4: Yeah, that's that's outstanding. Aisha, are we getting any closer To unionizing at McDonald's, do you think?
3: I think we're getting very close. As long as we keep going out, standing united together, and all of us workers around the world, and we're doing what we're supposed to do. It's like already, we've already won $15. Yeah. And it shouldn't have to take the government to say, okay, well, these workers, they deserve this money. It shouldn't have to take that. McDonald's should want to do what they supposed to do for us workers and want us to have a union. I come from two parents that were in a union and it paid off for our family. So I don't see anything wrong with us having a union for all. Everybody in 50 states deserves a union. All McDonald's workers, every fast food worker. Our, as black lives, we matter. I have not just my sons I take care of, I take care of my brother and my nephew. So I want something better for the next generation because their lives matter. My life matters. Every black and brown and Latina worker lives matters through this whole pandemic and even after the pandemic. McDonald's need to do what they're supposed to do for workers like me.
4: You're participating in the strike on Monday, are your co-workers and other McDonald's fast food workers in Chicago? Are they not going to work I'm on money.
3: As many fast food workers as I possibly can from different locations. Cause I have new workers at my McDonald's and I've been trying to get them to come in. We're slowly doing it, but I'm going around, not just at McDonald's. I hit four subways the other day and I have so far two people from different subways that are coming. So the more people we get, the United we stand, divided we fall.
5: There, there are also workers, uh, in addition to McDonald's workers, there are workers across the service and care industry, uh, all over the country, who are going to be joining, and who are primarily the Monday is really anchored by uh, workers who are, you know, called essential workers. Nurse, fast food, nursing home uh, workers, janitors in California who are risking their lives every day, but they're also going to be joined by other workers who uh, may not be going on uh, strikes in the same way that nursing home workers and fast food workers will be going on strike, but who will be participating in worksite actions to continue to send uh, messages that they also are um, that, that their work matters uh, and that they need to be treated as essential workers and that they're, you know, uh, that they're demanding uh, justice uh, and racial justice for black workers in this country, black people.
4: Right. You, you read my mind, Lynn, because that's what I was going to ask you. Just how big is this going to be? I want it to be as big as it can be.
5: Uh, at this point, we know of 25 cities, uh, that are in, uh, and that are going to be having, uh, actions in different ways. What we also know is that there will be thousands of workers, um, who will be participating in various ways, um, in terms of. Joining a um, more accessible eight-minute, forty-six-second rolling strike that's happening at noon local time for people who, you know, physically can't or uh, cannot afford to, you know, take the day off or whatever else. Um, and then they'll also be joined by thousands more allies and partners who are actually taking different kinds of actions, both online um, and then in in various ways. There'll be informational pickets. There'll be walk-offs. There'll be in-person protests. It'll come together in a number of different ways, and will be absolutely. Um, uh, and there are more people that are joining as we speak. And so that's not the full list of all that's happening.
4: Oh, that's, that's outstanding. This will be impressive. Before we go, Aisha, um, give us a charge. Make the call. Tell our audience why they should participate in the strike for Black Lives on Monday, July twentieth, And what's at stake, in your own words?
3: Well, what's at stake is that McDonald's yet again needs to do what they need to do. We need to come out, participate. United we stand, divided we fall. And unions for all, for everyone.
4: All right, folks, we invite you to go to the website to find out more. J20 Strike for Black Lives.org. J20 Strike for Black uh, Aisha Townsend, involved in the Fight for 15, trying to unionize McDonald's, fast food worker. She's already been involved in strikes against McDonald's. I'm, I'm proud to meet her, bad sister. And Alyn as well, who's an organizer in the Fight for 15 and they are one of the co-sponsoring lead organizations on the strike for black lives. And that's very, very important. So big day on Monday. We invite everyone to participate if and where you can, please do. And if you can't, ask somebody to strike on your behalf who can, you can do that. Ask somebody to be your proxy during this strike. Um, And as both of you have said so eloquently, you know, I wonder if black lives matter or do black people who were killed by the police matter because of life lives matter all living right now right what we have to deal with us who are alive right now as you mentioned your family members aisha you know we we wait for somebody to die and then we all march in the street we mm-hmm. need to be about this even before this happens.
5: right
4: so I want to thank you both for being here y'all got me fired up I love it <laughs>
5: Thank you, Reverend <laughs> Thomas. Very excited to see you on the streets, uh, or uh, virtually. Thank you.
4: Yeah, thank you. Alin, Amel, folks with the uh, Fight for 15, and uh, mother fast food worker at No Good McDonald's in Chicago, Aisha Townsend. Thank you both for joining us, OK? Thank you.
3: You're
4: welcome. All right. Folks, last month, we talked to you about a lawsuit that was filed on behalf of four cities to protect the Affordable Care Act from the Trump administration. We're going to give you an update on that, as well as some other actions that are taking place. This organization we know well is very busy, and that's good because it's busy on all of our behalfs. Joining us once again, no stranger, always a pleasure to chat with her from the organization Democracy Forward is Charisma Chroyano. Charisma, how are you? And I trust you all are still healthy and safe in this pandemic.
2: Yeah, I'm doing well, thank goodness. And family's doing good, so that's always good news. Thank you so much, Mark.
4: Yeah, no, it's it's a pleasure to have you back. So we talked about the lawsuit that was filed. Where, are, where do things stand now?
2: Yeah, so right now, um, um, believe it or not, on Monday, the administration is due to provide a reply. So we may get some indication as to why this administration believes that the COVID pandemic is not an extraordinary circumstance that warrants a special enrollment period to be open up uh, to allow for anyone um, who doesn't have access to insurance, regardless of if you lost your insurance because you lost your job amid COVID, um, or just don't have insurance because you missed um, an earlier enrollment deadline. Um, so. Hope, we'll, we'll hear more from the administration on Monday. I have no doubt that it will be as concerning as the fact that the administration still refuses to allow individuals to access and, um, the ACA at this very particular time of need. So we're, we're going to be sitting back and waiting to push out some responses. Uh,
4: the battle's on every front, obviously. Uh, and as we talked about before, I mean, I don't know how you undermine affordable, the Affordable Care Act in the middle of a pandemic that, (laughs) you know, but it kind of goes along with trying to force kids back to school in the middle of a pandemic. And if that were not enough, um, you all are are, are challenging what the administration is doing in terms of nutrition standards too, aren't you?
2: That's right. We, We luckily won that case. Um, And that was where the administration under Secretary Perdue, who uh, runs the USDA, had weakened um, the Michelle Obama guidelines. I mean, I'm calling them the Michelle Obama guidelines because they were a part of her get fit um, initiative, which had required um, a certain amount of whole grains to be in foods and had also required the reduction of sodium to be in foods that served to over 30 million children in schools every day. The Trump administration came in, said, we're gonna make school lunch great again. And by doing so, we're going to weaken those standards. Um, So, you know, let's add more salt into the food that our children are getting and let's reduce the amount of whole grains that they're consuming um, on a daily basis. A judge um, looked at that and said, there is no reasoned explanation for this. And in fact, what the administration had proposed was really no um, logical outgrowth for it to be so drastic um, to slash these standards in in such a manner. And so um, the judge ruled that that was unlawful, vacated um, that proposal, that final rule. And the administration came back and said, you know what, we're going to take the judge at her word we're not going we're just going to leave it as it is we're not going to challenge this case and so it stands that that rule is vacated now they could come back um and institute new rules um maybe under a less arbitrary and capricious process um so that's something that we will be looking out for
4: okay so that's a win that's good that is a win Uh, yeah yeah we we need as many of those as we can get um there's also give us an update on on the suit um, you filed over, um, uh, the administration failing to enforce anti-discrimination rules.
2: Yeah. So this is, believe it or not, the Trump administration, actually believe it, because I'm sure it's easy to believe that the Trump administration <laughs> is bringing redlining back, um, and, and doing so in a way that is extremely concerning, but also unlawful um and so i'm sure your um listeners are very well aware of what redlining is a federally sanctioned um process of lending discrimination um that happened or started rather in the 1930s and continued on um one could say it still continues on today um and so in the 1970s 1977 congress came up with what's called the community reinvestment act and this act was designed to combat redlining by putting an affirmative obligation on banks to invest in communities of color, to provide uh, lending and access to credit to lower and middle income communities, um, and to hold banks accountable when they don't do that. Um, and so what we ended up seeing with the Trump administration uh, under the Controller's office, jo- Joseph Odding, we can chat a little bit about him because he's quite a character, <laughs> um, but they um, completely gutted um, those protections, those anti-redlining protections, and they, they did so in a way that remove, for example, the primary benefit of um, an investment in a community to focus on the lower middle income and communities of color. No longer is that a requirement when banks are looking at investment. Um, Another thing that the Trump administration changed when they are gutted the Community Reinvestment Act is that they are focusing on big dollar investment and not on the actual quality of the investment. The Community Reinvestment Act as it stood before the Trump administration's changes, would assess bank's investment on whether or not they're assisting with community development um, and not necessarily are you putting money to a big sports facility that you probably would have invested in regardless and then counting that as an activity that qualifies under the Community Reinvestment Act. So those are a few ways in which the Trump administration has gutted the Community Reinvestment Act and one in particular is removing the voice of the community. The Community Reinvestment Act previously allowed or required rather for the communities to be able to comment on the way in which banks are serving or not serving that community's needs. Now that's no longer a requirement. The community um, engagement portion of it is not there.
4: So you're going to tell us about the controller.
2: Oh yeah. Oh man. So Joseph Otting, brace yourself here. He's now he's no longer the controller because he viewed changing or gutting and weakening the CRA as his piece de resistance. And as soon as he did that, he bounced out of the administration. He figured his work was done. Now, Joseph Odding comes from a bank called One West. One West is a bank that was owned by Steven the Treasury Secretary. That bank, yep, exactly. <laughs> that bank, um, you know, when looking at some of the investments or lack of investments um, there, that bank oversaw about 10,000 foreclosures in minority communities. The California Reinvestment uh, Coalition did an analysis and noted that about 68% of those foreclosures were in California's communities of color. Another study looked at One West um, activities and noted that within a two year period, they only made two mortgage loans to black folks. And so that is the type of, that is the individual who's behind the scenes who was working and instituting this change. Someone who told Congress that he didn't think that discrimination even exists. He noted that he doesn't read the newspaper, he doesn't read books, and so there is no indication for him that there is anything on the scale of discrimination that we know anyone who's not moderately informed is aware is occurring within the housing and the lending market. Uh, and you know, he said that it was some of his friends in the inner city who let him know that discrimination is a thing that occurs. And that is who Trump appointed to head the Comptroller's Office, and that is who Trump appointed to lead the gutting and the weakening of the anti-redlining protections in the Community Reinvestment Act.
4: You know, hearing you describe that charisma, um, I mean, we're, we're talking about a lot of specificity and detail that... The average voter may not be aware of, you know, because that's not leading the news cycle. Which I'm not saying it shouldn't be, but it's not. But, but to me, that is confirmation of what happens. When people are on, on in the news cycle talking about preserving Confederate statues, people can't be naive enough to think, well, that's just one racist thing they do. What you're describing is one of the policy things that happens that doesn't get publicity that goes right along with the Confederate statutes. So Confederate statues is one thing, but when you gut the Community Reinvestment Act or bring redlining back, that's even more detrimental, you know, and people need to under... Un, 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 understand that. So it's not just about statues, y'all. Right. This is about real policy that's taking place. And we you know, we, we get upset about statues, I'm just, I'm I'm right. I, I'm not saying that's wrong. Everybody's right in terms of dealing with statues. They should come down, and we have to engage. But we have to understand the policy that goes behind that that is con- consistent with the Confederate mentality and ideology.
2: That's absolutely, absolutely right. And, and the symbols of the statue, these symbols of confederacy, these symbols of discrimination really are just, you know, uplifting or highlighting what's really happening in a pernicious manner below the surface. And, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones actually referenced and was talking about this in her most recent piece for the New York Times Magazine on reparations and was noting how redlining, this federally sanctioned discrimination practice, was a process of putting the government's foot on the neck of Amer- black Americans and Americans of color in the sense that we are no longer and not able to amass generational wealth. And that is, an ex- the CRA was designed to combat that. And for this administration to so nefariously, and I say that because the way in which they did it um, was to silence community groups who were trying to speak out about this to prevent um, any sort of like disclosure on Auding's communications with bank executives. I mean, these are the sorts of things that are happening behind the scenes when it comes to these policy decisions. And so it's not just who is making these policy decisions, the, the way in which these policy decisions are being made to now fully understand how and why the impact is the way it is. Uh, and, and, and so, it spreads through, through generations. You had, you know, because of this from the 1930s through today, you had white communities being able to flourish through bank investments and other lending um, in those communities, while you had communities of color having to struggle to get any modicum of access to credit, whether it was for their small businesses, whether it was for community development projects, or whether it was to be able to purchase a home in your own neighborhood.
4: Right, right, right. And this is this is very important. Folks, so again, we want to see, as you as you said, the pernicious activities that are taking place under the surface. So we yeah, had no no thank you for that, folks. And we've got to look at this and keep this in mind uh come November. Okay. Um couple of other wins on Democracy Forward's part in terms of representing asylum seekers. Tell us about those if you will.
2: Yeah, so um, right now, we are uh, representing, we were representing asylum seekers in the Cuccinelli case where we were challenging Ken Cuccinelli, who is the, I don't even know his title anymore, because of our win, the judge announced that the Trump administration actually unlawfully appointed Cuccinelli to run um, the U.S. Immigration um, Office, USCIS, um, and, but in that case, What ended up happening was that Cuccinelli, who we alleged and the judge agreed was unlawfully appointed to run the immigration office had instituted a number of asylum directives that really did reduce the protection for asylum seekers. Um, For example, they reduced the amount of time that an asylum seeker would be able to access their attorney Um, in order to communicate and and prepare a case for their what's called a credible fear interview where that's where the asylum seeker is able to explain why they have a credible fear of persecution if they were to go back to their home country. Um, They also reduce the amount of time for um, an asylum seeker to prepare or to um, have a continuance and so um, the administration or under Cuccinelli rather had stated that only if you know you're in the hospital or in some other ways medically incapacitated would you be able to delay um, your your hearing and so a judge looking at the way in which the administration appointed Cuccinelli which let me just kind of go through that a little bit because they did it in a way to install Cuccinelli, who was an anti-immigrant hardliner. I mean, from his time uh, in Virginia, through his time within this administration, you hear him talking now about immigration policies. It's very clear, um, his anti-immigrant and xenophobic bias. And what this administration did in order to install Cuccinelli to head um, the immigration office because they knew that Cuccinelli wouldn't even get past the Senate. In fact, Mitch McConnell even said, I'm not gonna allow this person to get through. So the administration decided that, well, we're going to skip over um, the deputy who's in charge of UCICS and instead install Cuccinelli as a principal um, assistant. And so these are all kind of, you know, terms that don't really mean a lot within like our everyday parlance, but it does mean a lot in the terms of succession when it comes to who's appointed and who's next in charge. What the judge ended up saying was that process that the administration did where they bypassed the deputy who would have been the next person in charge in order to install Ken Cuccinelli, that was unlawful. Um, And by so, things that Cuccinelli did while in that position are similarly void.
4: Yeah, um, so that's a win.
2: That is a great win.
4: Uh, Yeah, were were you all, and I think it's been rescinded, but uh, I thought about you all earlier this week in the whole conversation about students having to leave the country if they weren't attending on school on campus. Um, I think that they pulled back on that, if I'm not mistaken, but did yeah. you all weigh in on that as well? N-
2: We didn't. There were a number of um, states led by California and, of course, Harvard um, and MIT who immediately filed suit against the administration. And they filed suit under the Administrative Procedure Act, the argument there being that the action that the administration took was arbitrary and capricious. And that's important language because it's the arbitrary and capricious nature by which this administration enacts their policies that caused the Supreme Court of the United States to void and knock out the administration's attempt to rescind DACA because that was an unreasoned, um, an arbitrary and capricious action by the administration. That's what the Supreme Court said. So using the APA, which is the Administrative Procedure Act, which has the provision of policy cannot be done in an arbitrary and capricious manner, um, that is the, the, the law within which these schools and states had filed against the administration with regard to the ICE um, student visa policy. But, you know, our organization has filed and won a number of our cases under the Administrative Procedure Act because this administration has almost in every instance no reasoned explanation for the unlawful and harmful actions that they take. And judges are starting to take notice.
4: Something else, Charisma, Secretary of State Pompeo spoke on yesterday, about human rights, um, somewhat hypocritical for those words even to come out of a member of this administration's mouth. And he worked; they, they put a report together. Um, Talk to us about what Democracy Forward has been doing to hold Pompeo accountable, and any reaction you might have to his speech on yesterday.
2: Yeah, and and this speech was on the Commission um, on Unalienable Rights, which was. An outside um, advisory group that Pompeo created and staffed with individuals who come with the bias of belief that religious freedom takes precedence over any and all other rights. Um, and that's extremely concerning. Um, so the federal law, the Federal Advisory Committee Act in particular, requires that any time a federal agency is engaging an outside advisory group for advice and any recommendations on federal policy that that advisory group needs to be balanced um, and fairly balanced. So you need to have a varying um, viewpoints, especially for those groups or individuals who will be impacted by the ultimate recommendations by that committee. Um, in addition to, it requires these committees to be transparent. Meetings should be public. Um, records within the meeting should be public. Um, and these are things that Pompeo did not do um, when creating this commission on unalienable rights. Um, this commission is stacked, like I said, with individuals who hold a biased view. And just to kind of give you an understanding of who I'm talking about, about who's on this commission, these are folks who believe that marriage equality um, is nonsensical, who believe that homosexuality is a sign of the end times, believe that women should not be given contraceptives um, in order to prevent the Zika virus from being transferred to um, newborns in in utero, you know, and so so that's, these are the individuals who are on this commission, and who's not on this commission are mainstream human rights organizations. Um, Not on this commission are the State Department diplomats for human rights, Um, and so that led us to file a lawsuit on behalf of a number of human rights organizations, including the RFK human rights. Um, including the Council for Global Equality and the Global Justice Center and an organization called Change, um, because we understood that the recommendations that come out of this commission would be designed to curtail the rights of LGBTQI individuals as well as women and their access to sexual and reproductive health abroad. The same sorts of rights that the Trump administration is curtailing domestically for these communities is exactly the types of rights that this administration is using this commission on any unalienable rights to curtail abroad.
4: Um, he attacked the 1619 Project, which I thought was interesting. Um, I have been skimming through the report um, and I know Democracy 4 will do a far more thorough analysis than me, but listen to this one thing I pulled up um, there's a paragraph on page 49, the failings of international organizations. And it's, it reads, in 2018, after extensive efforts to work from within to reform the United Nations Human Rights Council, the United States withdrew from it. United Nations Human Rights Council shows many of the same flaws that had come to mark its predecessor, the Human Rights Commission, charged with addressing human rights violations globally, the council gave greatly disproportionate attention to Israel while ignoring egregious human rights abuses in many other parts of the world. It is interesting that they would you know, singularize that issue, but it goes on to say, these outcomes are in part a function of programmatic bias, bias at the uh, uh, commission, um, I'm, I'm sorry, at the council and in the United Nations more broadly. Um, so when we talk about human rights and knowing most recently that when that when the, U, the UN Human Rights Council, at the behest of the Africa Group, charisma, um, motioned for a commission of inquiry into police violence and systemic racism in the United States. Pompeo State Department called everybody in the world and threatened their aid, threatened their financial support, their money, threatened their political standing with the United States to kill that motion. So as far as I'm concerned, and this just happened in the month of June. So as far as I'm concerned, don't talk to me about what the Trump administration is gonna do about human rights because they thwarted it, thwarted it in, at that very time. And obviously from what you described, they will probably thwart it even further.
2: I, I, absolutely. I mean, I don't think that there's any um, question that the recommendations that are contained in this report will do just that, based on the viewpoints of the folks who are on this commission, as well as the viewpoints that Secretary Pompeo has espoused from the creation of this commission, and even through his speech yesterday, Um, again, this idea that religious freedom is what is paramount to any and everything else. I mean, these are the sorts of concerns that the the UN um, Council on on Human Rights and and other um, international human rights um, bodies and organizations understand as being the vehicle through which you curtail universal human rights of of people. Um, And and so that hypocrisy um, of, of, of this administration, you know, in, in so many ways, not only because of their inability to assess um, and grapple with, or I guess, lack of care um, about the human rights abuses that they are perpetuating onto individuals in this country. I mean, let's not forget the children and the adults who are currently still in cages along this border i mean this is all happening under this administration i mean many people i'm sure have called that a human rights um, abuse and, and and so i just think that it is quite um curious and a bit hilarious to, to have these sorts of remarks and um concerns of being sure that america is holding up an ideal of human rights and, and attack, but casting that ideal of human rights in something that is discriminatory
4: so where is the lawsuit now
2: the lawsuit is still ongoing and even though the commission has put out their report our lawsuit is not over Um, though our lawsuit does challenge the creation and the formation of this commission it also argues that anything that comes out of the commission is similarly illegal. And so, you know, think about it in the context of criminal law, even though this isn't a criminal case, it's a civil case. But if a police officer executes a search um, of your home or your vehicle, and that search was an unlawful search, anything that came out of that search is fruit from the poisonous tree and similarly unlawful and be thrown out of court. And that's what we're asking the judge in this case to to rule that the report in and of itself, because it came out of an unlawfully biased commission, um, a commission that has no public interest um, benefit or or utility, um, should be similarly rejected as unlawful. And the administration should not be allowed to use any of those recommendations in any policies that they put forth with regard to human rights and the way in which the US enforces or um, adheres or applies the concept of human rights in any of their foreign policy decisions.
4: Indeed. Folks, Charisma Troiano is always keeping us up to date on all the important work that Democracy Forward is doing, um, and it is important work indeed. We invite you to go to democracyforward.org to keep up uh, with all of the very important ways they are trying to, Democracy Forward is trying to intervene on all of our behalfs. Charisma, thank you as always okay
2: thank you so much mark
4: god you are our refuge send our ancestors to guard our doors cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies heal bless and protect everyone listening and their loved ones thank you for listening to make it plain and get woke remember to listen like and subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify and wherever you get your podcasts If all minds are clear, it has been made plain.